that sort of experience can't help but change you. And I think what it did to me was it made me understand that life is very fickle and to make the most of absolutely everything. And I think that probably if I'm reflecting now, that drives a lot of what I what has caused me to be busy in the past because I didn't want to miss out on anything. I wanted to fit as much in as I possibly could to, you know, make the dash on my tombstone mean as much as it possibly could to the planet. G'day and welcome to episode 38 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and thanks a lot for joining us again this week. Today's guest, I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you. Over the last 15 years, Catherine Marriott has worked in management, strategic and leadership roles in the ag, research and regional development sectors, both in Australia and overseas. She's a graduate of the Australian Rural Leadership Program and was the 2012 WA Rural Women of the Year. It's fair to say that Mazza's career has thrown its fair share of challenges, yet with a dose of optimism and getting on with the job, she lifts up and inspires those around her. After losing a parent at a young age, Maz talks about trying to fit in a lot into a short period of time and how she, her approach was to make the most of every opportunity that was presented to her. Her work has seen her contributing in Australia and overseas, and her work specifically around empowering women in the rural sectors is absolutely inspiring. Maz talks about how she was on the ground in Indonesia during the live export ban in 2011. It's around the 24 minute mark that she talks about this, and it's her first hand recount and experiences as she lives and breathes it. Maz is a true leader, someone who I find incredibly humbling inspiring and bloody lucky that I could just sit down and ha- have a chat with her. I had so much fun recording this episode as I'm sure you guys will all be able to hear. And so one last thing I'd love from you, if you enjoy listening to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, if you like where we're going with it, please rate, review and subscribe. And most importantly, I'd love for you to reach out and get in touch with me with any suggestions and feedback you've got. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, Maz. I'm very excited to have you here. God, oh, good on you, Ollie. I'm pretty chuffed to be here myself. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I wanted to start off, given we're still just in January in 2021, but in a couple of sentences, what would you say you learned from last year that makes you optimistic about this year? Oh my gosh! We straight Holy, into it, aren't a, we? That's a that's a task and a half for two sentences. No, no, twenty twenty. Oh, a few. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, so twenty twenty, I think, was a year that caused me personally to pause and understand what was important in life. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And it also enabled me to challenge the identities that I have and understand which ones serve me and which ones enslave me. So that was actually quite freeing. So it was a big year. It was a difficult year. I think it was a difficult year for a lot of people. But out of it, I'm actually really chuffed with what I learnt and um, and what 2021 and beyond, dun, 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 sound like Buzz Lightyear, uh, has in <laughs> store for us all. <laughs> I'm intrigued in that, like the pausing piece. So you've been flat out for quite a number of years now, forever probably. Yes. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you mean by, yeah, I suppose pause and then also that challenging the identities? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess in like, a, you know, everybody has a journey. Mine has been um, 
always around and involved with agriculture and my career sort of, uh, you know, started as, well, I finished my university degree and then went and with a Jillaroo. Uh, I then became a cattle nutritionist and worked up in Northern Australia and Asia. Uh, then ran, like with the live export suspension, um, recognised a spot for, or recognised a gap where there was no women or very few women representing agriculture. So I started a, a women's in agriculture, uh, women in agriculture leadership sort of company and communications company. Uh, and then, you know, ran the KPCA. So it's just like, it's just been a full on life. But what I found was that I, I realised that in order for me to sort of feel valued, I was in an airport or a hotel the whole time. I didn't know any different. I sort of, my career, sky, like not skyrocketed, that sounds that's a ridiculous thing to say, but just sort of snowballed and into busyness, I guess. And I think probably there's a lot of people that can relate to that. And so 2020 forced me to pause. Um, and I said, this is going to sound so naughty of me, but... Uh, one of the sort of things that I didn't want to let go was my platinum frequent flyer, and the reason for that is I didn't want to, I didn't want to wait in a line. Like how stupid, like how like hoity-toity do I sound? Oh, I don't want to wait in a line at an airport. But I think because I was spending so much time there, <laughs> um, I you know, and so then it, you just get this self-perpetuating busyness, and with that comes a sense of importance, and it's all absolutely imaginary. Like it's in your head. Uh, and what 2020 taught me was that I could be totally effective and, uh, and you know, make a contribution by being at home and grow a love of gardening. <laughs> yeah, right. That was awesome. Yeah. I was going to yeah, say, was I, felt, I felt important when I got a bronze freak on flyers. So God knows what it's like being a platinum. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, one of them, actually, so, uh, you know, you fly occasionally, you fly socially with friends. And they'd say, oh, Mars, I can't believe that you're platinum. That's amazing. I was like, yeah, that's French for I have no life and I live in airports. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, it sounds all very luxurious. But, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess I share that with you, Ollie, because it was a sign of probably how bound up in busyness I was. And then you have these fears which are so ridiculous upon reflection. I mean, fancy worrying about losing a platinum status at an airport because you had to wait in a line. Like, that's insane. But yet before the gift of 2020, I hadn't paused to realise that I was valuing really unimportant things in my life. Yeah. i got a question on your career piece. So you were saying it was snowballing as in just things just kept linking up. Did you feel like you had control over your career and where it was and steering where it was going or did you feel like it was on a path and you were a bit of a passenger on it? No, I've always felt that I've been able to steer my career but I get addicted to adrenaline and contributing and working hard. And like, I like the buzz of being able to set a task and achieve things. And so when I say snowballing, there was always something else that I could do. Like, and I've always said that I'm an innovator and an entrepreneur. And when things sort of, when, when things become easy, I, I move on to the next thing. And it's, you know, I guess it's lucky that I work in ag because there's always something that's ahead of me that's bigger than me that, you know, you can launch launch into and, and try and make a difference and learn. So I've always felt that I've been um, in control of that. And I guess I've felt very blessed that I've been able to take on different roles and invent different roles for myself, all of which have made a contribution. And that, I guess it's that piece that I get addicted to is the, you know, you make a difference in people's lives and they smile 
or they tell you a story about how you've impacted them. And I don't, I can't even think of anything specific, but you sort of, I don't know, do you get addicted to busyness? Um, Or is it addicted to contribution? Or is it, you know, driven by the fact that, I don't know, you don't think you're enough, so you keep trying and you keep trying. I I don't know, but I I love it. But now that I know that there's an alternative, I love that more. (laughs) Yeah, so you think this is here to stay? Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've learned that you can be much more effective, or no, not much more effective, but much more balanced, uh, and therefore the input that I've had has been different and more well thought, I think, than it was in the past. It's funny when you talk yeah. about busyness. I was watching a guy this morning, like we just luckily down at, at mum's place, which is down by the beach, and here he was, he was on his phone, like, texting so his head was down he had three kids just running around him in the water uh, it was like holy yep. shit like <laughs> you are missing out on life my friend yes and that's exactly like that's that I was that person yeah you know I was constantly in a phone or in a computer or in a hotel room or running to the next meeting and life is so much more than that and I'm really grateful that I learned that at the age of 39 yeah so that was going to be my next question was there events in your life early on that you thought, shit, I need to, like it, or you said the other day and posted on Twitter about it uh, for your 40th birthday, that was it that you, your dad never got there? Like, did you feel like you had to fit a heap of things in, in case something happens to you down the yeah. track? Yeah, I, th- I think you have, yeah, so we lost dad when he was 40. Um, so he didn't make it past 40, he died of cancer. And I think that, Ollie, you've nailed it. It's um, I think when you lose a parent or you go through, you know, I'm certainly not Robinson Crusoe. There's lots of people that lose parents, whether through dying or divorce or whatever. Um, you know, I was the oldest of four kids. So when Dad died, uh, we were, well, he died the day before Tom's fifth birthday. So we were essentially five, six, seven, and nine. And Mum um, kept the farm going, and slave labour was alive and well. And of course, I was the oldest, so I was the bossiest. I was very responsible. <laughs> everybody else <laughs> um and you know and I think that that sort of those that sort of experience can't help but change you and I think what it did to me was it made me understand that life is very fickle and to make the most of absolutely everything and I think that probably if I'm reflecting now that drives a lot of what I what has caused me to be busy in the past because I didn't want to miss out on anything I wanted to fit as much in as I possibly could to, you know, make the dash on my tombstone mean as much as it possibly could to the planet. Yeah. But I, I guess 2020 made me pause and realise that um, I don't have to give everything that I have to everyone else. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www dot rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you.
I actually need to have a life myself as well. And so I've really enjoyed, you know, like I say, learning to garden and going for slow rides on my mountain bike with my Kelpie. Um, and actually, oh, there you go. There's the phone. I said that might happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if you heard that sitting in my Riverine Plains HQ office here. I actually um, But yeah. Oh, didn't you? Oh, gosh, there you go. Those <laughs> ear, ear pads, pods, things, you've got it. Oh, funny. <laughs> Sharp ads. Go Apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I, I think everyone has a journey that shapes them. And I really love um, working in agriculture, and I'm sure that there's other sectors that do the same, but it's the richness of the stories and the experiences that people have, which I just find absolutely fascinating, but also inspiring. I think... Um, you know, like we've got a story as a family, sure, but there's always someone who's got, um, you know, a different story that's almost worse than yours. And it, so it gives you, it inspires you and keeps you, um, keeps you, I, I guess, inspired and wanting to keep contributing and not give up. You know, there's so many stories of droughts and floods and all, you know, accidents and all sorts of things. Um, and I guess I was exposed to a fair bit of trauma as a kid, like I lost 13 um, friends and family by the time I was 16 years old. So I think just through different, you know, all different random things. Um, and so, yeah, it does. It gives you a zest for life and an understanding and a, and a real appreciation for and a determination to make the most of it and have a crack while you're here, I suppose. Mm, absolutely. There's two things I want to yeah. jump, I want to ask off that. One is about the, like the high purpose piece. That kind of quest, and, and like I've thought about it when I've spoken with schools or even like universities, like asking people in the room and I suppose just measuring where people are in terms of how aspirational they are. But if there are people sitting there that actually feel like they can change the world through what they do. And yeah. I'd be really interested to know like from your perspective, do you, do you feel like you, or you're talking about making a positive contribution to the planet to all these people in rural communities, is that really what's driving you underlying all of this is that you do have this self-belief that you can make a positive contribution and change the world in your pocket? Yeah, look, and, and I don't, this is such an interesting question to ponder, Ollie, because I've spoken to people who said, well, what happens if I haven't had a trauma or what happens if I haven't you know, had anything happen to me, can I be special? Can I make a difference? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. I guess experience will drive anybody's desire to have an outcome. But I fundamentally, the other thing, I guess for me, changing changing the planet for the better happens one person at a time. And so like if I'm doing a keynote address or, you know, running a leadership program or managing a research program or running an organisation or whatever it is that we're doing, or participating in a committee or whatever it is, if I can um, make one person smile or make one person think a little bit differently or make one person believe in themselves, then to me, that's how we change the world. I don't think we change the world broad scale very often. I mean, sure, there are people that have done that. But to me, it's the individual conversations that actually count. They're the ones that make a difference. If you can give someone confidence to apply for a board or apply for a job and support them in doing that, that's even better um, because you actually get to them to see you get to see them through their journey and and enable them to shine and then you see the happiness at the end and that's what really counts for me. Yeah, no, for sure. I think when it comes to positive contribution too, 
to ch- to make substantial change at a big level positively is far harder than it would be negatively, I suppose. Yeah. If you look at back across history. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you need people to change. You need you need people to come with you um, for anything that you're wanting to do. And so, you know, fundamentally everything that I do uh, is is surrounded by and grounded in people and, and what they want to collectively do. And then I can pull other bits and pieces together with other people to make it happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're sort of steering a ship with a thousand sailors. There you go. There's an acronym. Oh, not an acronym. What is it? A synonym. No, simile. I don't know. Anyway, whatever that's. Metaphor. <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> Look at me go. My English teacher would be so proud of me. <laughs> By 11 o'clock on a Monday morning. Look out. <laughs> oh, gosh. Stop it. <laughs> I suppose I've got one other thing I want to ask on the like career piece and then yes. we can jump into other areas. But So to do all these different things, like you went from – yeah, being up north, then you went over into Asia, into northern Australia with um, the Kimberley Cattle uh, Association. Yeah, Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen. Yep. Yeah, and then also the northern CRC. But mm-hmm. Are there things or, or what did you actually have to sacrifice along the way to pursue your career that that you really wanted to? I, that's Yeah, you're a, you're a belter at asking questions, Ollie. Look, that's another <laughs> belter. I don't – I actually don't think – I sacrificed anything because I don't believe in regrets. I am really a strong believer in the fact that you do your best at all times and there's consequences, but you can't change the past. So why would you bother worrying about it? Like, yeah, sure, there's things that I think, God, what were you thinking, you crazy individual? But I don't dwell on that. So I don't think that I sacrificed anything. Um, I don't have a family, so... Um, but that was a choice that I made um, pretty early on. I love my nephews and nieces, but I never wanted kids. So some people would say that I sacrificed that, but that was a choice that I made. And it was pretty hard early on when I made that choice because people would say, well, you know, when are you going to get married and when are you going to have children? And when I said they didn't want, I didn't want them, people were quite um, affronted by that, thinking, oh, yes, but, and, you know, quite commonly I'd get, ah, oh, but you don't know that now. You might want them later. I was like, well, if I do change my mind and want them later, there's plenty of kids that don't have a home, a loving home that you know I could I could share with them. But I don't I don't know I don't think I don't feel like I've sacrificed anything. I've had an absolute belter of a life. I've travelled the world and been able to work and meet with some incredible people. Um, and I guess that's just the way that I shape the outlook on my life. It's it's just been one hell of a journey, uh, and there's nothing that I feel like I've missed out on. Except for the gardening now, or the appreciation for oh. gardening. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My mum is the most amazing gardener and she grows all these indoor plants outside and I've always gone, oh, mum's got a nice garden. But now that I'm not travelling, um, I'm even learning the Latin names, Ollie. Gosh, oh, mum will geez. be so proud of me. <laughs> you know your next hobby that but you yes. might pick up will be bird watching or something. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that, the overseas experience, and this is – one part which, like, I just love about ag and find so fascinating. Like, when I was at Marcus Oldham, we got to go – went to New Zealand, but we also got to go to China. And China, yeah. or just those Asian markets, is just bloody incredible. Well, it's just yeah. fascinating. What's uh, – yeah. yeah, did you have any favourite memories or, or key things that, I suppose, really stood out to you but, that 
agriculture goes far beyond just our backyard in Australia and the impact you can have on the lives of people far, far away. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the most beautiful thing about ag, Ollie, is that it, it, uh, it de-borders or de-boundaries everything and brings a real humanising uh, thing to it. So I'll give you a couple of examples of, like, I just, I absolutely love working right throughout Asia because the resourcefulness of the people, it's incredible. When, when you live in a developed nation, you take things for granted. You know, things like running water, things like, you know, machinery, pollution, technology, money, food on the table, education, healthcare systems, all of these things that we just absolutely take for granted. And I was constantly inspired by the ingenuity of the Indonesian and Philippine farmers. Um, but I was, there was a couple of really poignant moments. One, I was sitting um, in Pakistan, actually, with a group of mango farmers. So this was with my um, ACR commissioner's role, so the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. And we were surrounded by guns driven um, in bomb-proof motor cars. And, like, it was just extraordinary. And um, one of the farmers turned to me, and we are just sitting under a mango tree yarning about a mango project. And he said to me, you know, Pakistani farmers are just like Australian farmers. We want the same things. We want a healthy family. We want to provide healthy food to our, you know, to people. It's just that we have terrorism and you don't. And it was just the most grounding, extraordinary experience to have this person who circumstantially was born in Pakistan and I was circumstantially born in Australia driving to get the same thing. Like, I guess, in Indonesia, just constantly working with, you know, people on feedlot design, animal handling stuff, breeding programs. And like one of the things that I managed to do was implement a breeding program. Um, so the government did some, uh, made some decisions about 10% of the herd going into um, breeding programs. And I employed about 50 women from a local village. And one of them I became really, really good friends with. And at night, because I used to stay out at the feedlot, so I didn't come back into a hotel or anything. I, you know, I'm a believer of the fact that you want to understand, you know, the organisation or the industry that you're working in right from the grassroots. And that's something that I've always done. Um, And we were tonking through Indonesian villages on, like on mopeds or motorbikes. And we came across this fair and I jumped in a bamboo, um, one of those things that go round and round, fairy wheel, Ferris, Ferris wheel. <laughs> I, ju- I jumped in a bamboo Ferris wheel. I'm like, I am 800 times what all of you weigh. I'm sure this thing's going to break. Anyway, away we went and had just like it was, just, I mean, and those are the real life experiences, the real human connections that come from a commonality. And quite often, like when I first went over there, I couldn't speak the language, but the, the joy that you can share with hand signals, charades, uh, and laughter is something I'll never forget and I'll forever be grateful for, just the simplicity in life. We couldn't even communicate, but yet we could. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I had some, I had some very funny um, translations. <laughs> and English, English lost in the translation experiences, which, you know, keeps it real. Did, you, well. um, did you manage to pick up the language after a while? Yeah, 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 I did. I, I spoke really quite good feedlot Indonesian, I call it. Feedlot uh, and Indonesian. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I could speak, like I knew all of the farming, all the farming language. I was a bit slower when I was in board meetings. Um, but I'd just say to the guys, can you just speak a bit more slowly and use simpler language? 
which, you know, I think is something important we need to remember in agriculture, talking to non-agricultural people, is to use simpler language and understand that, you know, there's some things non-farming people just don't understand. Um, and, you know, and they'd speak more slowly and speak a simpler sort of Indonesian. Uh, and, you know, and I was able to contribute or at least understand. So, you know, I think, like going back to what I said, it's really important to understand things from the ground up. And I felt so blessed to be able to, to do so. But there was no point in me speaking to people who speak English in management when it's the people from the village that are feeding the cattle. They're the ones that I needed to get to. So I, I made myself learn to speak their language. And were you over in Indo when the, the cattle ban went on in 2011? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was. So I lived, uh, no, I never lived there. I lived in Malaysia, um, but I worked in Indonesia and the Philippines because that makes total sense now that I say it. Um, like a lot of things that I do, <laughs> I don't find the easiest <laughs> way. Um, you get those frequent <laughs> flyers one way or another. Oh, no, that was with Malaysian Airlines, so I oh. lost all of those. <laughs> Dude, you're lucky. Anyway. You were in Indonesia, so you were on the on the ground when the cattle or the live export ban yes. came in. Yes. So what was that Yes, like? I was. Um, horrifying, actually, to be honest, because I did not work in an industry that was anything like what that Four Corners program showed. And if I was working for that, if I just wouldn't have worked for that industry, I would have been on the other side trying to ban it as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I worked in a lot of feedlots. I'd been to quite a few abattoirs and I'd never seen anything like it. So I was absolutely horrified, to be honest, and in quite a lot of shock. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, and then, um, yeah, continued to work afterwards and implement, um, you know, animal welfare programs and that sort of thing. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it was fascinating. I tell you something that, and this goes back to the developed nation, developing nation thing. The change that the Indonesian feedlot sector made in six months, I honestly could put my hand on my heart and say the Australian feedlot industry, or like any industry, not just the feedlot industry, but the but any industry in Australia would not have been able to do the change as rapidly as they did. They literally revolutionised an industry in six months over there. Yeah, wow. Because it comes back to, and look, I suppose well, this is one area which I really want to understand more from, from my own perspective, but also because I think, for our audience, like if we can actually ask questions about these things, it's going to be beneficial. And so one of the arguments we hear around why live export has to happen is that there's just not enough refrigerators in, say, Indonesia for these people that they, yeah. they need live animals. Otherwise, they'd go without any form of or, yeah, animal protein. Yeah. Look, that, I mean, that's true to a certain degree, but that's changing. Indonesia is... Um, you know, increasing in the middle class. So there is more and more fridge. But by large majority, that's correct. So people will go down to the wet market at sort of four or five o'clock in the morning and buy their meat fresh. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's an interesting conversation to have because people that are opposed to the live export industry are opposed to it because of an animal welfare um, standpoint. And what I'm about to share with you does not address that directly, but shares some um, some other insights which people might be interested in. But the animal welfare piece is something that I was always very passionate about as well, which is why I was so upset with that footage as everybody in the industry was. But the other thing that I think is quite important is um, from a, I guess, from a holistic um, holistic systems approach, when animals are sent over to Indonesia, they're actually fed a lot of um, waste byproduct. So that's 
um, so basically they are able to make a quality protein out of um, coffee waste, chocolate waste, noodle waste, rice, whole waste. So things that traditionally would have been put into a pit and burnt. So that obviously creates a lot of carbon, you know, smoke in the atmosphere, that sort of thing. So they're turning a waste product into a high quality protein. And the other thing is that when the animal is um, is processed over in Indonesia, they use the entire animal to eat. So for human consumption, there's nothing that goes to waste. So, you know, I guess from a, a sustainability standpoint, it's, it's a very different system to ours, but it's one that's really interesting. And I, um, I haven't been in touch with the industry for probably seven or eight years now, um, but the animal welfare programs and things that I believe they've got are, um, are improving all the time as well, which, you know, if we weren't in the industry, um, there, there wouldn't be those animal welfare improvements. So I think Australia almost has, um, well, we have, an ob- we have an obligation, I don't know whether that's the right word, but to, to share animal welfare um, you know, practices and, and help improve because that keeps them safe when they're handling their own cattle as well. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting one too when it comes to like the cultural practices and that's where I think like ag is so unique because it's, well, yeah, one of the areas which is unique because it's across the globe, but it's so fundamentally different as well when it comes to areas. And it's not saying that, yeah, the way that we utilise an animal is the right way and what they do is the wrong way. Like it's the same as looking at parenting oh, and saying not. you're a good parent, you're a bad parent, but it's subjective. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I feel I'm very conscious of the fact that I've been over there. I've seen seen how it all works, and I've met the people. But they're all really good people. I think it it I guess it can be quite confronting when you go into a situation that you're not used to because culturally it's different. So you have to take off all of your um, preconceived judgments and value propositions with your full gut and your wet throat and your roof over your head and your safety. Um, to understand, and it's almost like you're standing naked, going, "Okay, teach me," because this is so different. I can't, I can't conceive how different this is. Uh, and I guess that's where a big sense of my gratitude comes from as well, Ollie. Is you know, I've seen um, the way that different people live, and I've certainly not seen war-torn areas or anything like that, which would give another completely another depth of you know appreciation for things. In its own right, but I have done a lot of work and lived over in developing countries, and it—I feel very blessed to have been able to do that because it makes you reflect on and have a deeper sense of genuine gratitude for what we have in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, perspective isn't yeah. it, which shapes so much yeah. what we do. Yeah, yeah. And what I find fascinating now about like, the live export thing—the the young groups that are really taking a forward stand, like they've nearly been sitting there in the background and I think, yeah, like Australia's been doing areas, but like now there's the Young Live Exporters Network and there's a whole bunch of really passionate young people that are throwing their names and their faces right behind this industry and really speaking up because not only what it does for, I suppose, Northern Australia and the communities, but it is what it's providing into to other people. And I think that is what makes it like pretty special too when it is, it's, it's so it's selfless in the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, and nothing inspires me more than young people in ag because I think 
it's the younger generation, and now that I'm 40, Ollie, I can say that. I'm officially not a young person in ag anymore. That's what one of my mates told me the other day. I was like, oh, yeah, that no, old chestnut. Right, yeah, 40 um, and below, isn't it? you got to get to 40 <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'm still in. I'm still in. <laughs> still in the cool club. Um, but, yeah, but it's the young people in ag, and, and the thing that I've noticed is that there's a lot of people coming into ag from outside ag, and I love that. You know, they bring different perspectives. They bring different experiences. Uh, and I think that that can only make our industry richer. So, yeah, the young live exporters and the young people, like the, you know, the ringers out on stations, they're all contributing and, and helping to change and make the industry better and more sustainable and constantly improving. I love it. It's so good. Yeah, absolutely. I want to um, talk to you about leadership. And this, <laughs> the podcast is an area for me to ask questions that I'm just genuinely interested as well about the person. But so yeah. your your career, like you've had quite a number of accolades as well from Rural Women's Awards. Um, where I first saw you, you were the MC for the NFS National Congress. But like oh. <laughs> it somewhat somewhat followed you the way through. Like, did that ever change your perspective as you were going through or I suppose deter what you were trying to achieve? What do you mean? The awards and accolades? Yeah. Oh, look, Ollie, can like I, I couldn't be less interested in them. That sounds so awful, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I love it. And I don't mean I don't mean any disrespect for you know people that have bestowed upon me beautiful and generous things. But to me, like oh gosh, honestly, it makes it, it almost like I know lots of people that have got awards that are total tools. And I, and so to me, I just sort of think it's more what's more important to me is the impact that I can have as a result of an experience rather than making it all about me. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's the way I've been brought up or, you know, and I'm very, very grateful, make no mistake. I don't I don't mean to belittle that, but it's not something that I hang my hat on and go, yeah, I've made it. Yeah. Like, it just, I don't know. It's really fun. It's, um, yeah, anyway, it, it's not something that I talk about or get excited about. I'm more excited about someone who I've met in the street Catherine Marriott, oh, you spoke six years ago at this thing and as a result I've done this and it totally changed my life. I'm like, that makes my heart sing. Not a, I don't even know, look, this sounds really bad, but I don't know any of my trophies or medals or certificates are. Yeah. I think they're in a box somewhere. That's bad, isn't it? <laughs> not, not in the <laughs> but pool room. It's the human, yeah, no, the, well, I don't have a pool room. <laughs> with some, with some crock, um, crooked pottery mugs. Um but yeah, it's the human connection, and I mean, this is the Humans in Ag podcast, which is why I absolutely love it. It's, it's that that genuinely makes my heart sing, not not any title. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, and it's like the most unassuming people can be the most inspiring as well. It's just that they, I suppose, they're just going about doing what they do best, whether it be that they're yeah. the local footy coach that is the most passionate person about rugby, and oh yes, these little that community is, heroes. And they, Yes, and they can totally change, you know, change a community. And that, like, you know, um, I've just recently finished up working in the bushfire recovery space and the local heroes that came out from nowhere and just believed in their little... Like, there's a lady uh, that I was sort of working alongside for a little while, Deirdre Greenholt, from Orney Valley. Orney Valley was totally annihilated in bushfires, but it had 60 people that lived there. And this woman just did not give up because they lost the community hall. 
uh, in the they lost everything pretty much in that whole valley. And Deirdre just did not give up. She kept fighting, and every, like you know, there was people in the community that I'm quite sure I don't know, but I'm sure thought that she was mad for the amount of work she was putting in to try and get this money. And they've got their town hall, like their little. It's not even a town; it's a, like a community in a valley. But they've got their valley hall being rebuilt because of this young, this one girl one woman who just wouldn't give up and it's that sort of stuff that makes my heart sing it's you know and ag and rural australia is full of local champions there's another woman louise holsey who um she raised two hundred and ten thousand dollars single-handedly through um a not-for-profit that she's on to help bushfire impacted families and it's that sort of stuff that makes my heart sing you know there's no accolade there's no anything other than people just getting you know pinning their ears back and getting stuck into making a difference and it's totally selfless but it's mm. completely inspirational yeah absolutely and i was actually i was yeah. doing a bit of research on you and there was a quote that you said oh God. no 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 this is i love this quote it was a <laughs> part of your una something something some award okay anyway it was oh. the quote was if you think you're too small to have an impact try sleeping in a swag with a mozzie <laughs> and i love yep. that I quote, I don't know, I heard it somewhere, but I just it. absolutely, yes, well, yeah, let's go <laughs> right, right on. <laughs> um, but it is so true, you know, the amount of times that people feel helpless because they think, you know, oh, I, I'm only one person, I can't possibly make a difference. But if everybody thought that, we'd never get anywhere. And then you get, I don't know whether you get the energy in somebody or somebody, you know, gets an idea and it's incredible the change that you can, you know, what does Margaret Mead say? Um, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's all that ever has. And Australia, rural Australia is full of them. Mm. Thoughtful, committed citizens. Look at us go. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and all, all the members that you're like, you're dealing with on the daily. It's just that it's get, yeah, getting the exposure and the perspective uh, to these people. You know, yeah. And I can't tell you, like I've just started working for this organisation, Riverine Plant. And it's a farming group based from Wagga down to Nagambi. It's 21 years old. Uh, the amount of volunteer hours that have gone into keeping this, the doors open and growing this organisation is extraordinary. And I'm only just, I'm really, really new. And I've met with probably five or six members so far. And each of them have got a story. They've got the most incredible um, ideas for how we can add value. It, it's that sort of stuff that really, I think, is the glue. To Australia. And I don't think rural Australians really care for accolades and awards and all that sort of stuff. Mm. They care about whether you can kick the dust and, um, you know, contribute, basically, is where it's at. Contribute, share, and laugh. Laughter is hugely important. Absolutely. No, I'm trying to think. Yeah. yeah. So that's, um, that's, that's what drives me, I guess. What about you? Can I interview you? What made you start Humans of Agriculture? Yeah. Um, what made me start Humans of Ag? Well, like, so, so I grew up, which, yeah, I grew up in Sydney and then like mum's family were in farming in Western Victoria. So I, I suppose I was pretty lucky. I got the city lifestyle, went to a decent school, um, hung out with my mates during the school term and then got to jump on a plane and get escorted through Melbourne airport by flight attendants and picked up by my uncle who <laughs> I just admired and wanted to be like. Oh my- God, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's how I got my bronze frequent fly. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and then, <laughs> so, like, I suppose I always, well, coming through high school, 
when I talked, we had careers advisors and I said, oh yeah, like I'd looked at Marcus Oldham basically since I was the age of 15. And yeah. then, yeah, he was like, oh, maybe do just a business degree. Like I, and I was like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, so I parked Marcus, ended up getting into ag economics at Sydney Uni, deferred that, went and worked in Cootamundra for a year on a property there. Oh, yeah, good yeah, old Cooter. Um, yeah, at Fudder Park. Yeah, so worked there, played footy for the tricolours and went went to Sydney <laughs> yeah. Uni and just hated it. Long story short, I suppose what um what led to Humans of Agriculture was that I spent the last basically ten years full time working in the ag industry, but I've spent yes. the eighteen years before that growing up in Sydney and so I hate the word divide. I wish people in agriculture would just remove oh. it because Yes. I fucking hate it. It's, <laughs> oh, it is my <laughs> it's my that rural urban divide thing. Oh. Because Oh, don't even my, get me started. It just here we go, it keeps on. it there. Oh mate. It keeps it there. It is insane. Why would you talk about it? And do you know where it comes from? Rural Australia. Yeah. No urban people talk about the urban rural divide because it's just we're all just, you know, Australian. And I used to, oh gosh. You're speaking my language, Maz. You're basically taking the words (laughs) out of my mouth. And that's the thing. It's like with humans of ag from the start, like to be honest, and no, I I do care. Like I really like that I have people in rural Australia who follow the podcast. It's fantastic. But I'm trying to tap into getting into the metro areas. And that's why the first episode I did, I talked with a chef. Um, I've talked with nutritionists. I've talked with dietitians. Like I'm trying to talk about, things with how the consumer actually interacts with ag. And I had a chance a few years ago to talk at an NFF, um, whatever it was called, their council meeting. And I said, why aren't we talking as commodity groups about the coffee or the bacon and eggs and bread? Like as soon as you start talking about the coffee, you've already brought three commodities into the conversation that otherwise you're trying to do single handedly. And you're talking from the angle of the, the cow or the sheep in the paddock this is why you should care about it. But uh, let's look at the consumer end. They're a far bigger group than us. Like how do we talk yeah. in a language they understand but then humanise it? Oh. And that's where there's so many passionate people, whether it's your chefs, your nutritionists, your farmers, the consumer, if they're a conscious yeah. consumer, like everyone's passionate about what they do. They're just yeah. – no one's joining the dots and connecting the people. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Oh, I can't tell you how much I absolutely love it. And I, like, I guess from my experience with the consumer and the farmer piece is, you know, you're going to engage with people that are like you or concepts that you're familiar with. And farming and town are two, like, extremely different lifestyles and ways of doing things. But we, we all have things in common, like food, like caring for the environment, like animal welfare, like food safety, like, um, you know, biodiversity all of those sorts of things. So if we can start to lift the conversation above the farm gate or the city um, block, we do have massive areas in common. And that's what, what really excites me. Because I think whether we like it or not, the consumer has got enormous power over how we're going to produce uh, farming, you know, farm in future. And there's a lot of people that don't like me saying that. But the reality of it is, even though legislation doesn't change, the marketplace is changing. Mm. And so trade and market access will become the driver for, you know, what what 
we're, what we're able to do. So we need to be having these conversations. I think it's so important. Yeah. And I, I reckon, love it. I reckon we've lost. And then, so I can't, coming back to like the podcast piece, like this time at the start of last year, I was like, okay, I want to set myself a bit of a challenge. I was like, I want to get, become a better listener. And I want to get better at asking like provocative questions that actually like instigate, I, I suppose, conversation, but thoughtful conversation as well. And so yeah. the thing I really want to do, and this, it, like, it's just a work in progress and it takes time, but I, I, I want to just create dialogue and basically remove myself from it. But yeah. how can yeah. we connect these people so all of a sudden it's basically like just an ongoing forum that, yeah, people can just ask questions. And so I've got a segment which I really want to do and it's basically call a consumer. And so I want a farmer on the air and I want them to be asking yeah. questions of the consumer that they want to know. And then the other one is phone, yeah. phone a farmer. And so the consumer gets the oh chance my to God. phone a farmer. Holy, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love your vision for bringing us all together because, you know, I just think it's, it's so important for the future. You said something and I can't remember what it was, but I was going, oh, yeah, if you find a course about asking really clever open questions, can you please ring me? Because it's, <laughs> it's something that I really want to do as well because I'm so fascinated by people's lives and, you know, what drives them and how they, you know, what, what contribution they want to make. But I, I struggle with the question. Yeah. And I think there's a difference. But, you know, you can go, like in, in my current role, you can go to farmers and say, Radio, what research would you like done? And they'll look at your blank face. Whereas you could ask something like, um, so trade and market access is becoming an issue in China. Uh, China is one of our major markets. What would it look like if we could grow grain and send it to India? So, so just actually getting people to think differently and be able to ask those clever questions that stimulates and brings out, you know, the richness of thought that people have. That's what I. That's my next little challenge. Yeah. No, it is. It's like. Um, how do you, how do you basically lead them in a direction where it's it's self discovery, but you got to lead yeah. them to think that way. Lead them to open that door. I actually said that. So I did a lot of Myers Briggs and DISC um, work in my leadership program, yeah. and I said to my sister, who is so understated and such a legend, but just she's and she's also very dry, Hannah. Uh, <laughs> and I said to her, Oh, Hannah, I'm loving doing all of this leadership stuff on. I find that I'm um, becoming quite like I'm, I'm improving my capacity to influence people and I'm loving that. And she goes, yeah, or you could just say manipulate. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, that wasn't quite where I was heading. <laughs> but thanks. Anyway, I thought, oh, God. I guess that's an interesting question though. Hey, what's the difference between influence and manipulate? I don't have the answer. Manipulate in my mind would be the do things for self-interest or a negative purpose, whereas influence is to bring people along. But, yeah, it's an interesting – anyway, that was just a yeah. snippet for you. Manipulate <laughs> would be if you're, like, consciously consciously influencing them, like, for your own agenda, wouldn't it? Whereas influence, you're allowing them to think freely. To have input. I know. Yeah, yeah, that is. I don't know. That might be a question for your followers. Yeah, we'll put it I'd be interested. In, I'd be interested in their thoughts, yeah. Absolutely. We'll put it Yeah, yeah. Put it online. Now that was the yeah. other the other thing I did want to talk to you about. So you did the ARLP and Yeah. That was yeah, you did that when you were my age. 
Um, so. Oh gosh, now I know how old you are, Ollie. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to follow in your footsteps too. Well, <laughs> are you trying to go to the ARLP? Yeah, trying to get on for the, oh. the course starting this year. Oh, honestly, Ollie, life changing. That course took me. Um, so how old was I? I think well, when did I do it? 2010. So I was 28. Um, when I did it, and that course took me. Oh gosh, it taught me so much. It taught me. I think growing up and losing dad, I didn't know. And I and this is going to sound so silly to your listeners, but it, I genuinely didn't know that asking for help was a thing you could do. That that was one of the biggest gifts that that course gave me was that in leadership, it's really important to ask for help. And it did two things. One, it actually ended up with the team getting a better outcome because I'm only one head. And being able to bring other people's input on gives you a much more well-rounded response all the time. Um, But the other thing it did was lift a whole heap of pressure off my shoulders. Because I think, um, you know, being responsible from such a young age, I actually shouldered a lot of responsibility really young. And that course gave me permission to release that pressure. And it was it was honestly one of the most life-changing things that I have ever had the privilege of being um, being involved in. And the networks that you'll form on there, the other people that you'll meet from rural Australia will be friends for life. It's, oh, I'm so thrilled you've applied for that. And can I ask on that, like, so the course goes for 15 months, but how far into the course was it that you had that epiphany or realisation? So that was, that was in the very first session, and I can't talk too much about it. I love it how um, no one talks about it too. It's like that's, yeah, that's so I fascinating. Know. <laughs> I know, but it's such a gift. So I don't want to wreck it for you. It'd be like me unwrapping your Christmas present. It's not fair. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was on the first session. But there were so many, um, like I, I will be in a meeting and something will pop into my head that I learned from the RLP. Just the tools, the tricks, the roundness of that program. Um, really took me from quite a naive little upstart that thought I knew everything to opening my eyes to the world of possibilities, the power of listening, um, the power of communication. We did an international study tour to India where we were able to, like we met with the, if you've ever been, have you ever been to India? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh. So India is mad, like absolutely mad. I love that country. It's, it's full of colours, smells, food, filth, people, different language. Like it's just insane. I love it a bit. But you go into the Delhi Metro, it's all white tiles and everything runs to the second. And so we were able to meet with people, uh, with the guy that actually runs that and I'd ask him all sorts of questions about his leadership style. We met a lady named Kiran Betty, who was the first Indian police officer and she just had the most extraordinary story of the fight that she had to be able to, you know, so she finished her training and then they wouldn't give her a job because she was a female. So she fought and fought and fought and they eventually gave her a posting in charge of a jail called the Tihar Jail, which is in India somewhere. And it was the worst jail. There was murders and drugs and all sorts of awful things happening. And it was in about 18 months. She had them all meditating. No one was smoking. It was all clean. It was just extraordinary. And so it was really interesting to be able to hear her story and her insights um, into what good leadership means for, for her. But it was very funny meeting her because you read about um, Kiran and she comes across as just this Nelson Mandela of India uh, and then you meet her and the first question she said to us all is, what are you all doing here? 
and she was really sort of so she was very driven and wanted to and we were all like oh god um oh we're sort of in awe of uh being in your presence and now you've just asked us a question what is that <laughs> but, it meant, but that in it <laughs> but that in itself is a lesson right because people are just people you you put people up on a pedestal in life and you know it all it is is a bloody long way to fall and i think you know everybody is just a human in a body trying to do their best and yeah sure people have different titles and different positions and different roles but ultimately we're all human and i think that 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 is also something that i learned on that trip is that you know there's no one you shouldn't be nervous about talking to anybody because ultimately we're all just doing our best yeah i've got to call brian up yeah she's one person who yeah she's a legend oh yes isn't she i've got a big girl crush on her i think she is the most phenomenal individual the way that she has revolutionized lift the profile lifted the impact of food bank mm. is oh she is just amazing yeah I'd, yeah and i yeah. love it so when i had her she's on, incredible she she just was like oh um what well, she's got like the this basically or oh, everyone knows who works at food bank is it's the noisy exit so if you've got to go to kids sports carnivals or you've got to go and visit your mum or dad or whatever it is like get yep. up and leave and don't try and hide the fact that you're going to do something for yourself. Like Brian is saying yep. she's got something that she wants to do or she's having a shit day. Well, she's going to tell you straight up that, I'm, yeah, I'm having a rough day. I need yep. you guys to take the slack. Um, yep. And it's, it's spoken and everyone understands it. Like God, it'd be, uh, yeah, an incredible place to work with, a, with someone who's a leader like that. Oh, and, and you know, it is, so important and and this is going back to what i learned in 2020 is i actually thought that it was cool and a badge of honor to work you know 70 hours a week and not have a life and what 2020 taught me is that that is absolutely not the way to go and it's certainly not an example that i wanted to set to other young people that i mentor and whatnot and so i just love that um that brianna has actually been able to implement that what an absolute legend and what a gift to her staff yeah for sure all right, I've got one last oh, question for you because I'm mindful of your time. But um, I, I try and I, I try and finish off with the last question for each person. And um, what's cool about this question is the Queensland DPI have actually used it in some of their schools programs, just which was awesome. But essentially, in, instead of that cliche question of what would you tell your 20 year old self, we'll push that. <laughs> what would be oh, your, yeah, yeah. What would be your advice to young people in say that year, year 10, year 11? They're about to embark on those kind of exciting years beyond school, but what would be your message to them about the opportunities in agriculture and even just some life advice more broadly? Oh, goodness. So I would say that anything that you want to do, you can do it through an agricultural lens. So don't discount agriculture as a career. You can do anything from media to singing to research to farming to engineering to tech design to um, social science anything that you want and ag is full of amazingly incredible and generous and inspirational people which is why I'm still in agriculture it's certainly like I'm not a farmer um, and the other piece of advice which I'm not sure um, will make sense to that particular age group but it's something that I've been really um, reflecting on lately when you're trying to make a decision on whether or not you should do something is actually take some time and pause uh, and picture yourself in that scenario and focus on your energy so does your energy actually lift and get excited 
by the possibilities or does your energy fall down and go, oh gosh, I can't believe that I have to do that. So what I started to do is actually scenario plan uh, in my head, take some time and focus on what my energy does. Does it lift and do I get all excited or does it sort of stay the same? And I'm like, meh, yeah, okay, that could be cool. But, you know, I want some, I want... I want more things in my life that make me go, yay, I'm really excited. I really want to get out and do that. So it sounds a bit airy-fairy, but to, you know, to scenario plan and think up things. So if you're trying to figure out what course to do at uni, sit and and have a think about, you know, do I want to do engineering? What does that do to my mood? Do I want to do um, science? Do I want to do accounting? Do I want to do biochemistry? Do I want to do medicine do I want to do law and actually scenario plan and watch what happens to your level of energy and your um your mood I guess does that make sense yeah no absolutely it does it's um yeah it's nearly like yeah what what is it that if you're talking to your friends and family about are they going to really notice like just how passionate you are about that area yes yes and if you absolutely and I you're on a winner yes you are absolutely on a winner and I, like I've had friends, um, it was actually my beautiful friend from the Pilbara, Annabelle Coffin. You need to get her on your podcast if you haven't. Um, and she, because I was at one stage, I was thinking about studying law, and and then I was also thinking about doing this leadership stuff. And she said, "Maz, why do you want to study law?" And I said, "Because I'm so cranky about the unjustness for farmers that people don't understand, and you know, people like." So I was, it was coming from a place of anger that why I wanted to study law because I just wanted to make it better. It was unfair and unjust. And then she said, and why do you want to study? Why do you want to help or do your leadership thing? And I said, because I just love people. I love seeing people do well. I really, you know, I think that rural Australia um, has so much to offer and it would be great to have the leadership capacity in rural communities to be able to bring that to the fore. And she goes, Maz, in one, you're really angry and in one, you're happy. The choice is easy. You've just made it. And it wasn't until someone actually said that to me that it made sense. And so, yeah, so that's, that's what I mean. And that comes exactly back to what you were saying as well when it comes to like doing something alone and trying to have all the answers or having someone else. Like it's just that, whether it's perspective yeah. or a different idea or just, yeah, seeing something that you yeah. can't see. Yes, that's exactly right. Because we're only in our own head and we only know what we know. So by having input from others and, and the best advice that I've ever had has come from random little snippets when I didn't expect it. Um, but you know, it taps into your unconscious incompetence. So you don't know what you don't know until somebody points it out. And then you're like, yes, that's totally a thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There you go. That's the uh, hour of wisdom. <laughs> oh, look out. It was a bit of a ride. That <laughs> oh, was good. I, um, oh, thanks so much for joining us today. We jumped around a bit, but yeah, I found it yeah, fascinating. Sorry about that. Oh, gosh, Ollie, good on you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I find what you're doing absolutely inspiring, and I can't wait to see where you go in your career because I think you're an incredible young man. Oh, thank you. We'll see. <laughs> well, I hope you haven't stopped pressing record yet. <laughs> well, guys, I hope you really enjoyed that conversation with Catherine Marriott, or as I referred to her, the whole way to room, Maz. She's an absolutely incredible person who just has so much to offer. And as I said at the start, I just felt bloody lucky that I could sit down, pick her brain, ask her questions that I was generally, genuinely curious about. This month, the month of February, we're going to talk a little bit more about Live Export. It provides us with the perfect opportunity to grow our understanding about it. So not only on our social media, 
via Instagram at humans of agriculture with an underscore, you can get in touch with us. But also on the podcast or get in touch with me on my email, ollie at humansofagriculture.com. We'd love to know what questions you guys have around live export, what you want to know, what it is that your perceptions are about industry today, and then let's kind of have a look at it at the end of the month and see what they are by then. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, check in on your mates, and most of all, importantly, look after yourselves. See you next week.